listening to the Bible 126 show. Last time we got through the first couple of chapters, book of Numbers, and um, it's kind of fun because behind some of these things, behind some of the details are great insights. Um, and the, the lesson there is that it's worth sometimes uh, putting the details together and then standing back to see what it's saying to us. But we had last time the order of the camp. We talked about the tribal standards, the uh, 12 signs of the Matzeroth, or the, what we would call the Zodiac, and how they are uh, linked to each of the 12 tribes by none other than Jacob himself, but then also by other references we used, and how the camps, the uh, 12 tribes in four camps around the four compass points of the tabernacle presented in effect a model of the throne of God. We also went through the numbers and saw how that the camp uh, when encamped, according to uh, our rabbinical understanding of it, is uh, formed uh, from the air across. Uh, the tribe of Judah being the largest on the east, the westernmost group being the smallest, yet each of them in, uh, roughly uh, square on the north, and about almost twice that to the south, and then the 150,000 on each of the two arms, uh, roughly. And so it's kind of interesting. But um, now we're going to shift gears. Uh, we're, we're going through the whole order of the host. We've talked about the 12 tribes proper. Now we're going to shift in Chapter th um, 3 of the book of um, Numbers to the priests and the Levites and, and some very specialty areas. And um, on the one hand, uh, it's easy to get bogged down in the detail. We'll try to... Avoid that. On the other hand, uh, there are some, uh, uh, hopefully, some some lessons for all of us here. So let's just uh, we'll just jump in. Uh, chapter three. We didn't get through chapter two last time, right? Okay. Chapter three, verse one. These also are the generations of Aaron and Moses in the day that the Lord spoke with Moses in Mount Sinai. And these are the names of the sons of Aaron, and Nadab the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar. And Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the priests who were anointed, whom he consecrated to minister in the priest's office. And Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered strange fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. And Eleazar and Ithamar ministered in the priest's office in the sight of Aaron their father. Strange fire. Fire that may have been well-intentioned, but not according to God's instruction. A heavy, a heavy lesson. Um, we're going to see this kind of thing show up again. Let's try 2 Samuel 6. Big lesson here. We're going to look at what David did. David the king. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. That's a bunch. And David rose and went with all the people uh, who were with him from Baal, Je Baal, Baal, Baal Judah <laughs> to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who dwelleth between the cherubim. Here's that expression, the Lord that dwelleth between the cherubim. When we actually see the throne of God, there are four, always four cherubim. 
we see that in the, in, in the several Old Testament visions of God, in Isaiah and Ezekiel, and we also see it in Revelation 4. In one place, the cherubim or seraphim, other places, the living creatures. But in any case, there are these four-faced entities that guard the throne. And he dwells among them. On the Ark of the Covenant, they had symbolized on there two cherubim. We visualize those as angels, but they're actually super angels, very special category. And there's two of them. And when the Ark stood in the tabernacle, uh, the cloud, the Shekinah glory, hovered over the, the Ark. And so he was said to dwell between the cherubim, and that's sort of a pun in two senses. He dwelt in the Holy of Holies between the cherubim above the Ark of the Covenant. And also that was, in effect, a, a model, if you will, of heaven itself where his actual throne was among the cherubim. So that, but here, the Lord of hosts who dwelleth between the cherubim. Again, the reference here in verse 2 is relative to the Ark of the Covenant, the strange coffin-shaped structure that uh, had the lid of solid gold called the mercy seat, but you and I would call it a lid that had these cherubim on it. In any case, verse 3, they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it up uh, out of the house of Abinadab, which was in uh, uh, Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Now, David's bringing it. He's ready now. There's up, It's an upbeat thing. He's doing what should be done. They bring the ark up uh, to Mount Zion. And uh, so David was sincere. Huh? His helpers were sincere. The 30,000 that were with him were jubilant. And these sons of Abinadab certainly um, meant well, right? So all the positive things are there, huh? Verse 5, And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps, and on psalteries, and on timbrels, and on coronets, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's thrashing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. In other words, as this ark is moving, it hits a bump or something, and the, the oxen that are pulling the cart, things about to tip over. So Uzzah does what? He puts his hand up to steady it, to keep it from falling over. Huh? Wasn't doing anything presumptuously. He wasn't trying to intrude on someone's office or anything like that. He was helping, right? Put his hand up to steady the cart. Verse 7, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. That's heavy, isn't it? Here's a guy who's in service of his king, helping to do what the king ordered, to move the ark um, up, and um, he's helping. He and his brother are... Uh, thing was stored at his father's house. They're bringing it up. And uh, the ark hits a bump or something. The oxen pull it, uh, jerk it somehow. It's going to fall over. And he puts his hand up to steady it. And he gets struck dead on the spot. Why do you suppose that's in the scripture? Or be more precise, why was God's anger kindled against Uzzah? 
And this is a case which may sound strange to us, and that's the reason I highlight it, because there's a lesson here that's not obvious. You and I tend to put a high premium on intentions. Gee, they meant well. Gee, they're sincere. They're certainly good-intentioned. Uh, Uzzah here was intentioned well, huh? He was certainly sincere. We have no reason to believe he didn't love the Lord. But he was violating the law of God because God spelled out how the ark was to be transported. It is to be transported on the shoulders of the Levites. Huh? They're doing it on a cart, right? That wasn't the way God had prescribed. And God is giving them a painful, sobering lesson that he means what he says. Now, you and I can glibly have a tendency to look at the quaint Old Testament rules and regulations and, and, and cling validly to the fact we're not under the law and all that. Uh, and I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. I'm not saying I'm suggesting we're under the law. However, uh, the lessons that God is giving Israel, he didn't give for Israel alone. Romans 15.4 says, Whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. And one of the lessons here, you and I are not confronted with how to move the Ark of the Covenant. It happened that, you know, of your list of worries this week, I don't think that's on them, right? <laughs> but God has given us instructions as to what pleases and displeases him. And he does expect us to know him. And he does expect us to understand that he means what he says and he says what he means. And... Uh, so, um, anyway, the story goes on. You can read it on your own. Back to Numbers. Um, here we have a brief reference in the early part of chapter 3 to these two sons of uh, Aaron, uh, Nadab and Abihu. They also perhaps meant well, but did not uh, administer the fire in the... Uh, tabernacle as they should have, and God took their lives. So uh, that's intended to get our attention. Again, you and I don't officiate in the tabernacle, but you and I do have opportunity to learn what God desires. And I'm going to suggest to you that God is serious about what he's doing. He expects to be taken seriously. And uh, I think that's really, for us, the main lesson that comes out of this. Well, there's a few more things coming as we go. But as we go through these quaint, what may seem to us quaint ordinances, uh, there's several reasons for studying them. Number one, behind many of them, correction, probably behind all of them is some insight in Jesus Christ. But some of those may be so technical and obscure that may not be appropriate for our particular review of this book. But here and there we'll find things like we did last time, and as we go we'll find things that are uh, uh, clearly uh, fruitful for us. But also, as we stand back from the nits and the gnats and the details, uh, there's a couple of lessons that should leap out at us. And one of them that's in common to all things is God is very specific. You know, as I often say, the Ten Commandments are not suggestions. You know, they're, they're, they're commandments. Uh, God's... Uh, uh, description to us of how he is to be worshipped 
And again, I'm not suggesting the specific form of worship here. That was for a particular time and a particular purpose. But the fact that he is to be worshipped, and there are ways that are appropriate and there are ways that are inappropriate. And he has gone to great lengths to instruct us. So even in our day, as uh, as uh, members of the body of Christ, uh, we can do well to take with gravity the things that uh, the, the nation Israel is here being instructed, especially in the next several chapters. Okay. Verse 5, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, I bring the tribe of Levi near, and present them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister unto him. And they shall keep his charge, and the charge of the whole congregation, before the tabernacle of the congregation, to do the service of the tabernacle. And they shall keep all the instruments of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the charge of the children of Israel, to do the service of the tabernacle. And thou shalt give the Levites unto Aaron and to his sons. They are wholly given unto him out of the children of Israel. Interesting, by the way, it's sort of upside down in a sense. Aaron was of the tribe of Levi. But the Levites are given to Aaron. Now, we're not talking, he was obviously a member of the tribe of Levi. That's not the issue here. Aaron is the high priest, and the Levites are set aside. They're not part of the army. They're set aside to minister unto the priests. Recognizing the priests are of the tribe of Levi, but treated as a separate class. The Levites collectively are charged with ministering to the priests. Verse 9, Thou shalt give the Levites unto Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given unto him out of the children of Israel. Thou shalt appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall wait on their priest's office, and the stranger that cometh near shall be put to death. Seems like a strange place for that passage in there, but again and again we run into that, that the foreigner, the non-Jew, the non-Jew, uh, um, if he's in the middle of this, is, is uh, subject to death. The Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, And I, behold, I have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel, instead of all the firstborn that openeth the womb among the children of Israel. Therefore the Levites shall be mine. And again, the firstborn committed unto the Lord, remember? But instead of literally taking the firstborn, he's taking the Levites instead as his. Okay? Because all the, verse 13, because all the firstborn are mine, for on the day that I smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I hallowed unto me all the firstborn in Israel. Both man and beast, mine shall they be. I am the Lord. Okay. And the Lord spoke, verse 14, And the Lord spoke unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, saying, Number the children of Levi, after the house of their fathers, by their families, Every male from a month old and upward shalt thou number them. Now notice the differences here. They're not numbered by the tribe. The Levites are the whole tribe. Previously went through the 12 tribes and each tribe had a number. Here we're talking about the families. There's three families within the tribe of Levi. So we're going to talk a little bit about these three families. They each have a specific mandate or charter or burden to carry. Also notice that we're not talking 20 years old and upwards like the army. We're talking one month up. They're being numbered. They will serve between 30 and 50 years of age. But they're not being numbered like army. They're being numbered as the, by the families from one month upward here. Every male from month old and upward shall thou number them. Verse 16, Moses numbered them according to the word of the Lord as he was commanded. And these were the sons of Levi by their names, Gershon, Kohath, 
and Merai. Merai. And those are the three families, and those three groups camp on the, around the tabernacle. Bear in mind, we have the tabernacle with the priests on the Moses and Aaron and the priests on the east side, and then these three families right adjacent to the tabernacle. And it's outside that perimeter, if you will, that we have the 12 tribes, the army, in four camps of three tribes each that we covered last time. And these are the names of the sons of Gershon by their families, uh, Libni and Shimei, and the sons of Kohath by their families, Amram and Izhar and Hebron and Uziel, and the sons of Merai by their families, Malai, Mushi, Mushai. These are the families of the Levites according to the house of their fathers. Of Gershon was the family of the Libnites and the family of the Shimites and the families of the Gershonites. Those who were numbered of them according to the number of all the males from the month old and upward, even those who were numbered of them, are 7,500. The families of the Gershonites shall encamp behind the tabernacle westward. So they're westward. They're on the opposite side, if you will, from Moses and so on. The head of the house of the father of the Gershonites shall be um, Elias Asaph, Asaph, the son of Bazil. Verse 25, the charge of the sons of Gershon in the tabernacle of the congregation shall be the tabernacle and the tent, the covering thereof, the hanging for the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the hangings of the court, and the curtain for the door of the court, which is by the tabernacle, and by the altar roundabout, and the cords of it for the service thereof. In other words, now of the Gershonites, we have the following things. There's 7,500 of them. They camp to the west of the tabernacle, the opposite side. And their primary custodianship had to do with the external coverings. Just to summarize all of that, if you think of that. The Kohathites are going to have the internal equipment, and the Merorites will have the, the structural stuff. That's roughly the way the three things um, d- divide up. But the, uh, the Gershonites, we're not talking about this, we're talking about when it's in motion. Because there's going to be much talked about here about when they set up and they tear down and move. The Gershonites, the Kohathites, and the Merorites have certain responsibilities. But when it's set up, the priests officiate. They don't. They have accountability to take it down and move it and set it up again, but they don't have ministerial rights officiating while it's in place. That's what the priests do. Okay. That bring, that Gershonites was from, well, verse 14 through 26 now, verse 27. And of Kohath was, uh, was the family of the... Uh, Amram, Amramites, and the family of the Izarites, and the family of the Hebronites, and the family of the Uzielites. And these are the family of the Kohathites. And the number of all the males a month and upward were 8,600, keeping uh, the charge of the sanctuary. The families of the sons of Kohath shall encamp on the side of the tabernacle southward. And the head of the house of the, of the father of families of the Kohathites shall be uh, Eliza Fan, the son of Uziel. And the charge shall be the ark and the table and the lampstand and the altars, in other words, both the brass and the golden altar, and the vessels of the sanctuary wherewith they minister, and the hanging and all the service thereof. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, shall be chief over the leaders of the Levites and have oversight of them who keep charge of the sanctuary. Of Merari was the family of the Malites, the family of the Mushites, and the families of the Merari. 
And those who were numbered of them, according to the number of all the males, from a month old and upward, were 6,200. And the head of the house of the father of the families of Merai was Zeriel, and uh, the son of Abigail and uh, Abihail, and uh, these shall encamp on the side of the tabernacle northward. And under the custody and the charge of the sons of Merai shall be the boards of the tabernacle, and the bars thereof, the pillars thereof, the sockets thereof, and all the vessels thereof, and all that serveth thereto, the pillars of the court round about, their sockets, and their pins, and their cords. But those who encamp before the tabernacle toward the east, even before the tabernacle of the congregation eastward, shall be Moses and Aaron and his sons, keeping the charge of the sanctuary for the charge of the children of Israel, and the stranger that cometh near shall be put to death. All who are numbered of the Levites, whom Moses and Aaron numbered at the commandment of the Lord, throughout their families, all the males from month old and upward, were 22,000. So we have the Gershonites to the west, external coverings, the Gorthites, the internal furniture, as we might call it, the table showbread, the two altars, and, and the menorah, and so on. Um, the uh, Moriahites uh, have the structural components. Now, you remember the tabernacle itself was actually built, it was like a house built of boards that were wrapped in gold, were covered with gold. And the boards were designed so that pins went through them to make a firm structure. And uh, then this was covered with, with coverings. Uh, the tabernacle, uh, that's the tabernacle, the building, what you might, you and I might call the tabernacle proper. The tabernacle itself, if you visualized a fenced-in area, roughly 75 by 150 feet, consists of posts covered with a linen fence, white linen, so, and it had only one gate in the front. And as you went in this inner courtyard, then had the, had the altar, the brazen altar, and the laver, this big wash basin. And then, uh, behind that was this house-like structure, which, is, uh, uh, which had a uh, inner sanctum called the Holy of Holies that was roughly 15 foot cubic length with height roughly. I'm, I'm using rough figures just to give you a feeling for it. I won't argue how big the cubit was. And uh, the holy place, which is the part you just first enter, is twice that size, like two cubes. 15 by 15 by, say, 30 feet. And then there's the, the last 15 by 15 by 15 was the cube, the Holy of Holies, separated by the veil. In the holy place, this 30-foot area, is where you had on the left side the menorah, the seven-branched candlestick, as it's sometimes called, actually a lampstand. And on the right side, you had the table of showbread with the 12 loaves of, uh, of uh, bread with the uh, frankincense baked in it. And uh, uh, then associated with the holy of Ho- in the Holy of Holies, of course, you had the Ark of the Covenant covered with this lid called the mercy seat, which is always described as a separate piece of furniture. Uh, which had the cherubim on it. And in the Ark of the Covenant was the two tables of stone that Moses brought down and uh, a pot of manna later and uh, um, Aaron's rod that budded and these artifacts that were venerated uh, by being kept in the Ark. It's always described as if it's in the Holy of Holies, but it's actually just outside the veil is the golden lampstand, which the thing that which, where they burned the incense. It's often confusing because in Exodus it's described as there's three things in the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, the Mercy Seat, and the Golden Altar, as they call it. Actually, the Golden Altar was just outside the veil because it had to be tended to, and you could not go inside the Holy of Holies but once a year, the high priest, and only after great ceremonial cleansing and so forth. So, uh, Now, the main point is, is that every detail of the tabernacle, the sizes, the colors, the materials, the way it was built, all points to Jesus Christ. 
We won't take the time now, uh, but I'll just highlight it generally to refresh your memories and also to stimulate you to dig into this if it, if it strikes your uh, interest. Uh, that uh, when you approached the tabernacle, all you saw was a white linen fence. All you saw was his righteousness, in effect. There is only one gate. Jesus Christ laid claim to every piece of furniture, in effect. Even the gate, there's only one gate. Jesus Christ says, I am the gate. Anyone that comes through but by me is a thief and a robber. And he's actually making a tabernacle-type allusion there. And as you come in, the first thing is sacrifice. You can go no further until there's a sacrifice on the brazen altar. And that was ceremonial, ceremonially addressed in many different ways. Before you, the priests could go into the holy place to, uh, to officiate, they washed themselves in the labor. So we have the offering, and we have the washing precedent to the entry in the holy place. When you go in the holy place, the only source of light was the seven-branch candlesticks, made uh, hammered out of a single piece of solid gold. But Jesus Christ speaks of, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He's the unity. The number of man is six. The one plus the six makes the seven or the completeness. And that sheds the light. I, you know, uh, uh, I am the light of the world, he says. We are to be his light bearers. That all, you can go on from there. The bread of life, exemplified by the table of showbread. Even the, oh, the other thing about the, when you read about the tabernacle, it's covered with a tapestry, and then goat hair and ramskins, and then finally, porpoise skins or sea, sea cow skins. Now, if you study that phrase, sometimes it's translated badger skins in your, in your New Testament. If you study that through the scripture, you'll discover that particular source of material was used for their shoes. During the 40 years wandering in the wilderness, their shoes did not wear out. And uh, that same, the same material is what covers. But something else that's interesting is that if you understand this strange building that's made of these vertical boards tied together by these rods, um, covered with gold. It's a beautiful thing. But then they wrapped a tapestry over that. Then they covered that with goat's hair skins and ram skins. And then over that, these, what some people call badger skins or porpoise skins or whatever they were, which is not particularly attractive. And you wonder, gee, what that's all about until you remember Isaiah 53. He has no form nor comeliness. There is no beauty that we would desire it. That's exactly what the tabernacle was from the outside. But by suitable preparation, entering in is when you saw the gold, the beauty, the tapestry, the cherry bin, all that sort of thing. So it's interesting how that goes. But something else that's interesting, the entire thing rested on sockets. When you go through Exodus and all the details of the tabernacle, you discover that all these gold panels that made up the house sat on silver sockets. Silver sockets in the ground, and it stays plugged into these silver sockets. And you wonder what that, all that's about. And you study Levitically, silver is the Levitical symbol for blood. The entire thing rested on silver, just as you and I, our position before God, rests on his shed blood. And the linkage of silver to blood is all through the Levitical system. The, the half shekel is the redemption money, if you will. You also recall uh, that, that idiomatic link is made by none other than Judas himself when he uh, throws the 30 pieces of silver on the temple floor and says, Behold, I have betrayed innocent blood. The link of the silver and the blood didn't start there. It's all the way through the scripture. It's a, it's a, an idiomatic link or a pun, if you will. The whole tabernacle rested, in effect, on Christ's shed blood, prophetically speaking. Um, now, I won't take the time now, but I do. if you have never done this, I commend to you a study of the tabernacle from a New Testament perspective. I think I've mentioned this before, that we speak of 
the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. And the Old Testament in the New Testament is revealed. And all these things that are buried here in the Torah have their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And one of the ways that you, one of the most fruitful studies you can do is to take a study of the, take under your own study style, a study of the tabernacle. Dig into Exodus, do it on yourself with a concordance if you like. There's a number of good books in the Christian bookstores that deal with the subject as a subject. Um, M.R.D. Hahn, H.A.I. Inside, they all have, many people have done an excellent treatment of this. The tabernacle, the house of blood. Every detail, every color, every material, every subtlety of the tabernacle has a prophet, an identifiable prophetic link to the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, it's a fascinating, fascinating study. But uh, here we're just touching upon it because here we have the families of the Levites, other than the priests, other than the sons of Aaron, the family of the Levites, commissioned to take care of the tabernacle. The Gershonites, the external stuff. The Kohathites, the internal stuff. And the Merorites, the actual structural equipment. These, as we go. Okay. Um, we're down to about verse 40. We're making great progress. The Lord said unto Moses, Number the, all the firstborn of the males of the children of Israel from a month old and upward, and take the number of their names. And thou shalt take the Levites for me, I am the Lord, instead of all the firstborn among the children of Israel. And the cattle of the Levites instead of the firstlings among the cattle of the children of Israel. And Moses numbered, as the Lord commanded him, all the firstborn among the children of Israel. And all the firstborn males by the number of their names from a month old and upward of those who were uh, numbered of them were 22,200, threescore and thirteen. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the children of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle, and the Levites shall be mine, I am the Lord. And for those who are to be redeemed of the two hundred and threescore and thirteen of the firstborn of the children of Israel, who are more than the Levites, thou shalt even take five shekels apiece by the pole, after the shekel of the sanctuary, thou shalt take them. The shekel is uh, 20 giras, for those of you who are a little confused about a shekel. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I frankly don't have to spend a lot of time with these tables in the back of your study Bible to try to reconcile these things, but I see uh, they, they clarify that for those of you that follow that. Okay. And thou shalt give the money wherewith the odd number of them is to be redeemed unto Aaron and his sons. In other words, there weren't quite enough Levites to count for the firstborn of all of Israel. They're short a little bit, so they make up the difference in cash. Uh-huh. Okay. I don't know if you've been in a stock distribution where you have a split or something, and the odd lots get cash equivalent. Same, similar kind of thing, I suspect. And Moses took the redemption money of them who were over and above them who were redeemed by the Levites, <clears throat> of the firstborn of the children of Israel, took he the money, a thousand three hundred and three score and five shekels, after the shekel of the sanctuary. And Moses gave the money of those who were redeemed unto Aaron and his sons, according to the word of the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. You notice the shekel we're talking about is the shekel of the sanctuary. Probably at this time it's the same money system. But as life goes on, the temple money deviates from the secular money. And they maintained a, secu- a, a temple, or a, a money, a form of shekel, that was used for the well, tabernacle here, but the temple later. And uh, when they when they developed commercial money of a different kind for commercial use, that's what gave rise to the money changers. 
See, when you read about that in the New Testament, you wonder, what are these money changers, you know? The idea was that in order to pay your taxes and temple issues, you had to do it in temple coin. And so these money changers would, you know, change money A to money B, if you will. And, of course, uh, while that was probably all right, because that was just the style of worship, the the usury or the, absor- the uh, exorbitant fees and the chicanery that went on is what gave them their bad reputation. They had a, they had a monopoly. You had no choice but to convert the currency. And so that's what gave rise to the abuses, caused them to be crooks of the form, and uh, that's what uh, all in turn gives rise to the Lord with a, a whip driving them out of the temple that you read about, you're so familiar with in the New Testament. It emerges because of the two different coins. You'll notice here, even even way back in the wilderness, you see they're talking about, um, you see that phrase in there? Uh, after the shekel of the sanctuary. See, there was a there was a, a, a style of money that was ordained for the sanctuary that doesn't change, or it changes very little, in effect. Um, well, now, uh, before we go on to chapter 4, you know, we read this, and it's kind of quaint and interesting, and it certainly uh, those of us that have a you know, a passion for the scripture. We want to learn all we can about all there is. At the same time, you sort of wonder, gee, what can we learn from all of this? Well, a couple of things. Um, you may say, what what relationship do we have to the Levites? Probably none, because they are under the law of Moses, and on the one hand, it's a different system, a different ecclesiastical order. Fine. Having said that, though, let's stand back a little bit. It's interesting that we may have more in common with them than uh, we generally are aware of. Uh, they were stand-ins for the firstborn, huh? Firstborn were holding the Lord. How many of you are firstborn here of a family? Now, if you're really spiritually on your toes and you know Chuck Nussler's two questions, you'd all raise your hand. How many of you belong to Jesus Christ? When God sees you, does he see your righteousness? God forbid, huh? I mean, me too. Don't, don't, I wasn't being us. And you know, God looks at me. I pray. I do not want His justice. I've read about His justice. It's perfect. I don't want. I don't want His justice. I'd rather have His mercy. And I'm grateful that the Scripture tells me that because I'm in Christ, He sees in me Christ's righteousness. When He looks at me, who does He see? His firstborn. You and I are God's firstborn. He was the first fruits of them that slept. That's a different issue. He's the firstborn of creation. The firstborn there doesn't mean he was born. He was born. He was made incarnate. But that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about position. Firstborn is a title. It's a position. He is in that position. And you and I are joint heirs with him. It's not that we get the crumbs off the table. We are co-heirs with him, Colossians tells us. That's wild stuff. And we won't deviate into Colossians tonight. Relax. But I mean... uh, now, what does that mean? Now, the Levites were firstborn in position, in effect, right? They were also, we will see later, I think it's, uh, we'll see the phrase, they were wholly given over to his service. That's where you and I are supposed to be. I won't ask for a show of hands on that. I don't want to have to, I don't want you to lie with me, you know. Wholly given over, no. We try. From time to time, we may come close. Not consistently, don't think. Um... But that's, that's, the, that's the mandate. That's the charge. It's also interesting that these are numbered by name. The Levites are numbered by name. You and I are numbered by name. The scripture tells us that he knows how many hairs on our head. 
And I, I kid you, and I'm not really kidding. Every time I take a shower, I figure, hey, he's, he's got to update his count by a couple, right? You see the hair go down, down the drain, huh? I don't know how many hairs on my head. He knows. And when did he know? Before the foundation of the world. That's what. He knows more about you than you will ever hope to know about yourself. And you're numbered by name. There's a book. He knows your name. Those of you that may have changed your name for whatever reason, hey, he's way ahead of you. Okay? He knew it long before you did. Now, incidentally, I also have a belief. You know, we hear the, uh, the, uh, with the rapture, the trump of God, we have the shout of the archangel and the trump of God. Do you know what the archangel shouts? We always talk about that, but we don't know what he shouts. I tell you what I believe. Can't prove it. It's one of Chuck Missler's weird ideas. I believe what you will hear if, if you're witnessing the rapture is your name. Lazarus, come forth. Then say, hey, you, or now is the time. <laughs> now, other people point out that he had to say, Lazarus, come forth, or all the graves would have been open. No, no, just you, Lazarus. See? You know, not now, Cato. You know. <laughs> but uh, just from my reading of the scripture, it would not, let me phrase it more precisely, because I'm not sure I really know much about all of that. But uh, let me put it this way. It wouldn't surprise me if that's exactly what you hear, that he called you by name at that time. Come hither. Just as John, in effect, was in Revelation. Okay, um, moving on to chapter 4. See what else we find here. Anyway, I mentioned these things, not that they're profound insights, but as we go along here, I do suggest there probably are analogies. There are things we can learn. As we see them called out for service, recognize you and I are called out for service. Now, we're not called out to their service. We're not subject to their rule. Don't misunderstand me. But I think God does not change. He's precise in what he expects, and he's, he has a concept of accountability. And there are ways in which it applies to us, just as indeed, of course, it's very expressly applied to the Levites here. By the way, chapter 4, verse 1, And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron, saying, Take the sum of the sons of Kohath from among the sons of Levi, after their families, by the house of their fathers, from thirty years old and upward, even until fifty years old, all that enter into the host to do the work in the tabernacle of the congregation. This shall be the service of the sons of Kohath, in the tabernacle of the congregation after the most holy things. Now, Kohath here is getting a um, singled out first. It's a different order than before, but they sort of have the, the inside track. You know, if you had your choice of being a Gershonite, a Kohathite, or a Merite, I'm not sure you'd want to make a big thing, but you'd probably like to be. Kohath had the in, inner, inner, internal stuff. But with that choice spot came burdens and risks. So we might be sense of that as we go here. And when the camp setteth for, uh, forward, in other words, when they're going to move, huh? Aaron shall come and his sons, and they shall take down the covering veil and cover the Ark of Testimony with it. In other words, the priests themselves will cover the Ark of the Covenant with the temple, with the veil, between the holy place and the holy of holies. And they'll wrap the Ark. So the Korthites are responsible for moving and carrying. They never see it. Not supposed to. The priests cover it. And they shall put thereon the covering of badger skins, or whatever word that really is. You, I think we, we, won't badger, we won't badger that to death. But I'm sorry, I was no, uh, that was inadvertent. Um, but the point is that uh, uh, most uh, authorities believe it was a sea animal, sea cow, or porpoise, something of that nature. 
but it's translated in most Bibles, badger skins, just because of the old 1611 King James interpretation. And shall spread over it a cloth holy of blue, and shall put in the staves thereof. Staves are these like sort of like uh, posts. You've seen coffee coffin carried on on poles. That mechanism was used for all the items: that the the, the uh, brazen altar, the laver, the table of showbread. Uh, all these things had holes in them where the where it could be borne on shoulders of carriers. The staves is what uh, they're calling it here. And upon the table of showbread they shall spread a cloth of blue and put thereon the dishes and the spoons and the bowls and the covers with which to cover them, and the continual bread shall be thereon. And they shall spread upon them a cloth of scarlet and cover the same with a covering of badger skins and shall put in the staves thereof. And they shall take a cloth of blue and cover the lampstand of the uh, of the light and its lamps and its tongs by the way, we often say candlesticks, but that's a mistranslation. It was an oil-driven type of illumination instrument, not a candlestick, but a, a lampstand is a more precise term. Anyway, and its lamps and its tongs and its snuff dishes and all the oil vessels thereof wherewith they minister unto it. And they shall put it and all the vessels thereof within a covering of badger skins and shall put it upon a bar. And upon the golden altar they shall spread a cloth of blue and cover it with a covering of badger skins and shall put in the staves thereof. And they shall take all the instruments of ministry wherewith they minister in the sanctuary and put them in a cloth of blue and cover them with a covering of badger skins and shall put them on a bar. And they shall take away the ashes from the altar and spread a purple cloth thereon. And they shall put upon it all the vessels thereof wherewith they minister about it, even the censers and the flesh hooks and the shovels and the basins and all the vessels of the altar, and they shall spread upon it a covering of badger skins and put in the staves of it. One of the things not dealt with here, we literally talked about the ashes or cinders, um, and it doesn't deal with it in detail here, but there is a widespread uh, uh, documentation that they kept the cinders warm so the fire, in effect, never went out. When they reset up, they would restart with those cinders somehow. That was the idea. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the vessels of the sanctuary as the camp is set for, is to set forward, after that, see, in other words, all this so far was wrapped up and packaged, if you will, by the priests, because you're dealing with sacred vessels. Okay, after that, the sons of Kohath shall come to bear it, but they shall not touch any holy thing, lest they die. These things are the burden of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of the congregation. That's tough stuff. With these responsibilities come burdens, risks. That general principle is very broad. If God calls you into a very specific ministry, uh, to the, that, that each ministry carries risks. Korath had, a, of, of the three, had a had on the one hand sort of a favored position, um, and uh, but they um, uh, also ran the risk of peaking. Gee, I wonder what this stuff looks like. You know. And what would happen? Three guesses, yeah. So it's an interesting. Also, through pride, there's all kinds of risks, not just risks of, in terms of something dramatic like touching the ark and being struck dead, or more subtle things, pride, arrogance, other things that will come distance them from the fellowship of the Father. Verse 16, And to the office of Eliezer, the son of Aaron the priest, pertaineth the oil of the light, and the sweet incense, and the daily meal offering, and the anointing oil, and the oversight of all the tabernacle, and of all that 
therein is, in the sanctuary and in the vessels thereof. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, saying, Cut ye not off the tribe of the families of the Kurathites from among the Levites, but thus do unto them that they may live and not die when they approach unto the most holy things. Aaron and his son shall go in and, and appoint them every one to his service and to his burden, but they shall not go in to see when the holy things are covered lest they die. Somewhere here, too, we're going to talk more about the Korathites, that they not be tempted and that you help them and so forth. But anyway, verse 21. The Lord spake again to Moses, saying, Take also the sum of the sons of Gershon throughout the, the houses of their fathers by their families from 30 years old and upper until 50 years old. Thou shalt number them, all that enter in to perform the service to do the work of the tabernacle congregation. Now, you notice they're from 30 to 50 is the region of service. Uh, later on in chapter 7, it'll be reduced to 25. And then in First Chronicles 23, the priesthood, it, it drops to 20. So those things will change. But right here, it's 30 to 50. And, uh, okay. Verse 24, this is the service of the families of the Gershonites, to serve and for burdens. They shall bear the curtains of the tabernacle and the tabernacle of the congregation, its covering, and the covering of the badger skins that is above it, and the hanging for, uh, for the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, he's speaking now of the external door. It's a cloth door, a veil, if you will. When they speak of the veil, I mean the one between the holy place and the holy of holies, which is wrapping the ark. But here, what we speak of the door here is also a cloth implement, if you will. That cloth is misleading. I think it's one of the ancient sources that tells us in the temple, not the tabernacle, but in the temple, that the so-called, we speak of the veil that was torn from top to bottom when Christ was crucified as being 18 inches thick. So I, that's a cloth, but it's not the kind of cloth you and I are used to. It was a heavy, a thick um, um, implementation. And so when that was torn from top to bottom, that, that, you know, the word veil to us sounds gossamer, right? Now, 18 inches thick from what I said. Josephus or someone deals with it. Uh, heavy, uh, it was a, something you don't do casually if you try. I don't know if you could do that with a chainsaw. I mean, that's a, right. Okay. Okay. And the hangings of the court and the hanging of the door of the gate of the court, which is by the tabernacle and by the altar round about, and their cords and all the instruments of their service, all that is made for them, so shall they serve. At the appointment of Aaron and his son shall be the service of the sons of the Gershonites in all their burdens and in all their service, and ye shall appoint unto them in charge all their burdens. This is the service of the families of the sons of Gershon in the tabernacle of the congregation, and their charge shall be under the hand of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest." Now, we've got two out of the three families. There's one to go here. As for the sons of Merari, thou shalt number them after their families by the house of their fathers. From 30 years old and upward unto 50 shalt thou number them, everyone who entereth into the service, to do the work of the tabernacle of the congregation. And this is the charge of their burden, according to all their service in the tabernacle congregation, the boards of the tabernacle, and the bars thereof, and the pillars thereof, and the sockets thereof. Maybe that's so glamorous, but heavy stuff. This is, you know, physically... Uh, burdensome. And the pillars of the court round about, and their sockets, and their pins, and their cords, with all their instruments, and with all their service, and by name ye shall reckon the instruments of the charge of their burden. This is the service of the families of the sons of Merari, according to all their service in the tabernacle of the congregation, under the hand of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. And Moses and Aaron, and the chief of the congregation, numbered the sons of the Kohathites after their families and after the house of their fathers from 30 years old and upward unto 50 years old, even one who entereth the service for the work of the tabernacle of the congregation. And those who were numbered 
of them by their families were 2,750. Big job, but a fairly good crew. That's a lot of, a lot of men. We're talking about men now. These were uh, they who were numbered of the families of Kohathites that they might do service in the tabernacle of the congregation whom Moses and Aaron did number according to the commandment of the Lord by the hand of Moses. And those who were numbered of the sons of Gershon throughout their families by the house of their fathers from 30 years old and upward, even to 50 years old, everyone who entered the service for the work of the tabernacle of the congregation, even those who were numbered of them throughout their families by the house of their fathers were 2,630. These are they who were numbered of the families of the sons of Gershon, all they that might do service in the tabernacle congregation, whom Moses and Aaron did number according to the commandment of the Lord, and those who were numbered of the families of the sons of Merari throughout their families by the hands of the house of their fathers, from 30 years old and upward, even unto 50 years old, everyone entereth into service for the work in the tabernacle of the congregation. Even those who were numbered of them after their families were 3,200. These are those who were numbered of the families of the sons of Merari, that's whom Moses and Aaron numbered according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses, all those who were numbered of, of the Levites, whom Moses and Aaron were, and the leaders of Israel numbered after their families and after the house of their fathers from 30 years old and up, upward unto 50 years old, everyone who came to do the service of the ministry and the service of the burden in the tabernacle of the congregation. Even those who were numbered of them were 8,504 score. According to the commandment of the Lord, they were numbered by the hand of Moses, everyone according to his service, according to his burden. Those were the numbered by him as the Lord commanded Moses. Okay. Um, you and I may not be numbered by families, but I submit to you that God calls us by name to his service, and everyone in this room has, I believe, a ministry uniquely appointed of the Lord. And part of the excitement and discovery is to discover what ministry that Lord has for you in his, in his scheme of things. So I suggest that as a, one possible application to us as we move on to chapter 5, verse 1. Now, we shift now from the ministry of the tabernacle to some other issues that are, again, uh, among, let's not get caught up in the technicalities of the details, but recognize what the Lord is really doing, and that is setting apart himself and the things of himself from defilement. The concept of the word holy simply means set apart or consecrated, set aside. And part of that setting aside means keeping it free of contamination. It is holy because it's declared holy. But declaring it holy means it's kept free of contamination. This is my cup of cold water. Thank you. I must be getting raspy, huh? I don't know if they have an indicator on the heresy filter there when it's, you know, they, they put the... Thank you. Okay, chapter 5, verse 1, The Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp... Now, we're going to put a lot of things out of the camp. The Lord is dwelling in the camp in the tabernacle. The tabernacle certainly is holy, only the priests are there. But the camp of Israel itself is deemed sacred. And those things that would defile the camp are put outside the camp. We're not talking about, we shifted gears now. We're not talking about the tabernacle and the priests and the, the Levites now. We're now talking about the camp of Israel again. Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper and everyone that hath an issue and whosoever is defiled by the dead. Now there's 
These aren't the only three things that defile, but there are three categories here that God has singled out to be examples. Leprosy, that's sort of understandable in a hygienic sense. Setting aside what we really know about leprosy today, it was regarded then as highly contagious. We now know that it's much more complicated than that. But in, the, in that era, in that time, it was regarded as contagious. This isn't just hygiene here. Because the other thing is, everyone that has an issue of blood, okay? You girls know what I'm talking about. There are all kinds of issues. They are not necessarily contagious. Putting them outside the camp is not hygiene. There's another point God is making. He is deeming leprosy, the issue, and contact with the dead. If you touch a dead body, you're defiled, Levitically. Where are you? Outside the camp for a while. That's, that, that's a concept in the, in the Law of Moses. Now, uh, you, there are books written on how much hy hygienic advantage Israel enjoyed because of these laws, but that wasn't the point of the laws. Some of the laws were hygienic. That's a different issue. We're not in Leviticus now. We're just in, in the basics here. But what God is doing here is instructing them that certain things defile. We're talking in a, in a Levitical or, or ceremonial sense they're defiled. If you touch a dead body, you're not necessarily contaminated. You wash your hands. I mean, you know, whatever. That's not the issue. If you recall, in uh, Israel, um, at the time of Passover, on the 14th of Nisan of every year, every able-bodied male was supposed to journey to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. It's one of the three feasts that were mandatory. And um, because at that time, Jerusalem was the, the visitation place, it was like a big tourist deal because once or three times a year, every able-bodied Jew that could manage to be there would be there to celebrate Passover or whatever. Now, because there were strangers in the territory, it's possible they could inadvertently stumble over a gravesite. And if they did, they would be unable to celebrate Passover because they'd be contaminated, they'd have to go through their procedure, and they couldn't celebrate Passover. So what did they do? They marked prior to Passover... I think 30 days before or whatever, they whitewashed all the sepulchers. They painted them with whitewash. They marked them. So a stranger passing through the terrain wouldn't accidentally stumble into what was a burying ground. So it was conventional. They were used to seeing a month before Passover or these particular feasts. It was the duty of whoever they, to mark these places. So strangers visiting Jews shouldn't say strangers, that term's usually used to Gentiles, but I mean visiting Jews, wouldn't inadvertently defile themselves so they couldn't celebrate Passover. And because they're so used to seeing sepulchers marked whitewashed, Jesus Christ's most scathing, most he used pretty creative language on the scribes and Pharisees. I mean, uh, some of those passages, are, even in the King James, pretty graphic generation of vipers. I mean, that's, you know, for someone that's brought up in the Torah, in Genesis 3.15, viper is kind of a strong term to call. But if you also understand all the Levitical stuff about touching a dead man's bones, to call the Pharisees that they're whited sepulchers, bright and clean on the outside and inside full of dead men's bones. You and I consider that sort of revulsive. We have no concept of how revolting that would be to someone a Pharisaically trained, you see. So that's when he said when he when Jesus says that to them he's he's uh, 
It's pretty interesting. Jesus, whenever he encountered um, the riffraff, murderers, adulterers, you name it, his response was always compassion, forgiveness. No matter, almost every time you see him, he gets in, when he encounters somebody that's what you and I would consider real low life. Always compassion. There's only one group of people that he invariably used violent language toward. The professional religionists of their day. The scribes and Pharisees. Jesus Christ is clearly the most anti-religious person that's ever walked the face of the earth. And uh, Mark gets into a whole other thing. Back, back to back to Numbers five. Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, everyone that hath an issue, and whosoever is defiled by the dead. Three examples, not the only things in the Levitical law, but three exemplars. And we'll come back to these three because not only are they here, but Jesus Christ Himself deals with all three. Remember the leper, the woman with the issue of blood, and we'll come to those in a little bit. So. Okay. Part of the instruction here, though, is God is teaching them some things, not about lepers, not about the issue of blood, and not about handling dead bodies. This is not a lesson in hygiene. It's a lesson in sin. These three things will emerge in God's instruction of Israel as symbols of sin. Sin is loathsome and repulsive. Sin is contagious. Okay. Sin is has an isolating power. And God is saying, if you put them out of the camp. Verse 3. Both male and female shall you put outside the camp. Shall you put them, uh, put out, outside the camp you shall put them, that they defile not their camps in the midst whereof I dwell. If you want God among us, then he wants the place, from his point of view, spick and span. And the children of Israel did so, and put them outside the camp as the Lord spake unto Moses and the children of Israel. The Lord um, spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel when a man or woman shall commit any sin that men commit to do a trespass against the Lord, and that person be... Oh, we're getting on to something else here. Let me, before we do that, um, comment on a couple of things. These three things, the leper, the issue, and the dead. The leper, if you really want to get into the law of lepers, Leviticus 13 and 14, the chapters 13 and chapter 14, talk all about the lepers. They will amplify this brief comment here. Um, now, the, uh, now, Christ dealing with, a healing, uh, with lepers is in Mark 1 and elsewhere. And, uh, and so... Uh, uh, it's the first, it's the first, for some very important reasons, it's the first miracle in the Gospel of Mark. But uh, healing lepers uh, is, uh, is, uh, is frequently found in the Scripture. Okay. And it's, it's particularly significant, not just because Christ is, is the physician in the Luke sense, that is, he can heal leprosy. To the Jewish mind, it was far more than that. He can heal sin. You see, leprosy, Levitically, is a type of sin. So his healing the leper was more than a act of, of, of uh, healing in the sense of the medical aspect of healing a leper. It also telegraphed to the informed minds there that he had the power not only over leprosy but also over sin. 
Now, this business of not necessarily a result of sin, but it becomes a type of sin, just in the same sense that uh, leprosy was a type of sin, just as uh, uh, leaven is a type of sin. Leaven's got nothing to do with sin, but it's a Levitically a type of sin. That's why they use unleavened bread at Passover. That's why they search the house for leaven, etc. And, and the use of leaven is, a, again, we're speaking here in the sense of idioms. Not that leprosy is caused by sin. I don't think that I'd... I'm sure there may have some that held that view. You know, if you have two Jews, you got three opinions. So, I mean, you got, you know... But, but there's no scriptural basis for that particularly, other than God is deeming it, the dealing with leprosy, as, as a, idiomatically a type of sin. The issue of blood is dealt the same way. Um, and uh, that, that we find that uh, background, if you're interested in it, is in Leviticus chapter 15, deals with the issue of blood. Now, the defilement of touch, uh, comes about by just like, like uh, touching the dead. Does touching a dead body do anything to you hygienically? Not really. Um, can, of course, but I mean not in the general sense. But it's, again, the wages of sin is what? So God is dealing his death, and, and, and God is again dealing with, we're dealing here with Levitical laws, or ceremonial issues, more than we are a medical hygiene issue. Um, now, don't misunderstand me. Obviously, there's hygienic aspects here, but that's not the, the, the yardstick that makes this. Incidentally, the uh, uh, laws of dealing with the dead are Leviticus 11, 21, and 19. It shows up in various ways. Now, uh, whenever we talk about the issue of blood, um, it's interesting that each one of these things is surfaces in the New Testament, in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Healing lepers, we don't have to look that up. We're all familiar with healing lepers. Raising the dead, we know Lazarus, the widow of Nain's son, Jairus' daughter are three examples. Um, one of the things to learn about that is, is that uh, how many times can you die? The general rule is once, right? But the widow of Nain's son and Jairus' daughter and Lazarus died how many, how many times? Twice. And I mention that because people make false doctrine out of Hebrews where it says it is appointed unto man but once to die and after this the judgment. That phrase in the epistle of Hebrews is there to, put it, to, to deny reincarnation. It is not there to imply that aren't exceptions as the three I just mentioned were. Okay? I mention that because you'll find people making doctrine on the issue that, uh, you know, uh, well, not doctrine so much, but this prophecy issue, and who are the two witnesses and all that. There's a lot of room for different views on that, but don't hang your hat on the fact that they have to be someone that didn't die that show up again. That's the point. But uh, uh, as long as we're on this subject, and uh, um, it might be kind of fun to pop out and take a look at this business of uh, issue of blood. And... Uh, uh, let's turn to Mark 5. Jesus had just come from the far side of the Sea of Galilee where he had the cast these demons out. I remember the case of the deviled ham, right? Yeah, oh yeah, that bad, yeah. Uh, my wife will scold me on that too. Um, strange story, of course, where you have these 2,000 sheep that are possessed by the demons in the sky, which means he had a lot of demons in them. And, of course, they drown, and they ask permission, and the Lord grants it. Who knows why? Um, but I won't get into that tonight. Let's move to verse 21. It's after that whole business. Um, that Jesus was passed over again by boat unto the other side, and many people gathered unto him, and he was uh, 
uh, near unto the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet. And he besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. So Jairus, the, the ruler of the synagogue, has faith, right? He, his whole presupposition is that he knows that Jesus can, if he comes, save his daughter, right? Because she's, almost, she's at the point of death. She's very sick. And Jesus went with him, and many people followed him and crowded him. So they're on their way to Jairus' house, right? A certain woman who had an issue of blood 12 years. Now, this is a gal who has an issue of blood, some kind of medical problem. She's had it for a while, 12 years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And when she had heard of Jesus, she came in the crowd behind and touched his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I may be well. In fact, in one of the other Gospels, we won't take the time now, but in uh, Matthew 9 and Luke 8, the same thing's recorded. And what she actually says is, if I can touch the hem of his garment. You and I don't understand hems. But hems were, was where the rank was showing. When David cut off the hem of Saul's coat in the cave when he was sleeping, he was stripping him of his rank. It wasn't just the hem of his garment like a it had symbolic significance, okay? Um, and there's all kinds of places throughout the Scripture where you, if you recognize it in that culture, the hem, the way it was embroidered or the color of it or whatever, told you the rank. Just like in the Navy, you have its stripes on the sleeve, the ranks on the sleeve, or in the Army Air Force, it's on the shoulder. Well, in that culture, it was on the hem of their garment, okay? But in this case, if she can but touch the hem of his garment, that is his authority, see? She was convinced, anyway, if I, may, uh, if I can touch it but it's closed, I may be well, right? And straightway, the fountain, and the straightway, the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. In other words, in the crowd, she touches the hem of his garment. In one of the other Gospels, he, he senses that, and he turns, right? He, he understands what happened. He wasn't, but in the bustle of the crowd, she touches the garment, and she's healed. She knows she's healed. Now, Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude crowding around thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? I mean, you, in the King James politeness, you, know, you can get that, you know, not to worry. Right? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her daughter, Thy faith hath made thee well. Go in peace and be well of thy plague. While he had spoke, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain, and there was a messenger, who said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? In other words, Jairus came to him, saved my daughter. He's on the way to save Jairus' daughter when this incident occurs with this woman. And he says, all there's a talk. And, so, and then the messenger comes and says, By the way, it's too late. The, the, woman, the, the, the daughter is dead. As soon as Jesus heard the word that he was spoken, he, hath, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. 
and he permitted no man to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Here again is one of those cases. There are several of them. The Transfiguration is one, and the Olivet Discourse is another, where there's an inner group. Not all. No one can go in there. crowd has to stay out. I assume there's more disciples there, too, not just the three. But the three, Peter, James, and John, go in. At the Transfiguration, who's there? Peter, right? At the Olivet Discourse, it's Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, his brother. The whole Matthew 24 thing is given to four guys secretly. Okay. The three go in with him. He cometh into the house of the ruler of the synagogue and seeth the tumult who, and those who wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado and weep? The child is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But when he had put them out, he taketh the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entereth in where the child was lying. And she took took the child by the hand and said unto her, Atalitha kumai. That is being interpreted, Little girl, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the child arose and, and walked, for she was of age twelve years, and they were astonished with a great astonishment. And he charged them strictly that no man should know it, and commanded that something should be given her to eat. Practical guy. She, you know, she's had an ordeal. Give her some food. Now, as you read the story, and it's recorded several other ways, I mean, in, in more detail with other Gospels, but this particular rendering by Mark gives us something that should bother you. How old was the daughter that was raised from the dead? Twelve. How long did the woman that ran into him in the crowd have her issue of blood? Now, I don't know about you, you know, when you're a mystic like I am, that's got to bother you. I do not, as, 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 as uh, Isaac Singer says, uh, uh, coincidence is not a kosher word, okay? There are no coincidences in the scripture. There's nothing trivial in the scripture. Every place name, every number uh, uh, has an ultimate meaning. So why does the Holy Spirit call our attention to the fact that the 12-year-old girl that was raised from the dead has some link, if you will, with a woman who has an issue of blood, Okay. Well, maybe this will help a little bit if I suggest to you some interesting things. Now, this is Mark. He's not a mystic. If this was John, I'd be on safer ground. John was a mystic, but Mark is kind of a practical young man. But nevertheless, this is there. Well, the first point is, if the woman with the issue of blood was Jewish, would she have been in that crowd? No, right on. Why? Because of Leviticus. Where would she be? Outside the camp, or at least at least not in the crowd. She'd be in isolation. That was their style of life. So it tells you something about this woman. What was she? A Gentile. Oh. And her faith makes her whole, huh? How interesting it is that Jesus Christ, on his way to the daughter of the ruler of the Jews, on the way there, by faith, saves a Gentile woman. Now, if you step back from the Scripture and see God's plan in the Gospel... It's, on, it's in route, if you will, to saving Israel that he puts a parenthesis and goes out into the highways and hedges and compels them to come in my house, maybe Phil, of what? Of Gentiles. The church issue is, is uh, surfacing here, if you will. Interesting thing. There's a whole uh, possibility, not, a, not an insistence, but a possibility that this, the very literal, real things that happened Jairus was really the ruler of the synagogue. He really had a daughter, and she really died and was brought back to life. And there was a gal who touched the hem of his garment, who apparently was Gentile. 
But nevertheless, now this is especially true in the Gospel of John. John builds his gospel on seven miracles, which give rise to seven discourses, which give rise to seven I am statements by the I am of the burning bush, Jesus Christ. The order of the miracles is not in chronological order. The chronology in John is not chronological. But it's in an order that happens idiomatically to describe the history of Israel spiritually. When you have the the uh, the guy that uh, was lame for 38 years, it corresponds to the book of Numbers, and we'll come back to that at the right time. Interesting. It's interesting to see that uh, um, the leper, the issue of blood, and the uh, defilement by touching the dead all show up in the Gospels by actions of our Lord uh, in those in those places. And, and uh, so again, uh, the leprosy in in the Levitical sense, I suggest, and the issue of blood and the, the defilement of the dead speaks ceremonially of sin. Uh, uh, sin's an isolating disease. It is contagious. And uh, 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 the other point that's... Uh, Leviticus 12 through 15 would be good background if you really want to get into this. And you'll discover, I always joke, you know, there's two kinds of people, those that divide things into, divide people into two classes and those that don't, right? That went by you, okay. <laughs> but there are in the scripture always two classes. There's the clean, the unclean. There's the sheep and the goats. There's the wheat and the tares. There's the chi- children of God and the children of wrath. And if you'll excuse the vernacular, the saved and the unsaved. And uh, uh, always the two classes. And one of the things for your notes, I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus Christ did not die to make bad men good. I suggest you write that down. Most people are confused on that point. I would say that 99 churches out of 100 throughout the centuries are confused on that point. Jesus Christ did not die to make bad men good. Jesus Christ died so that dead men might live. You and I without him are dead. And when we accept him and when we are washed in his blood, we are good in the sense that it's his righteousness that's imputed to us. Indeed, one expects to see changes in our behavior, but it's not that behavior that saves us. It's his behavior that saves us. So that's why this idea of sin being a disease, sin being an isolation, sin being put out of the camp, God is instructing us, first of all, here in very primitive terms, initial terms, is what sanctification is all about. The whole idea that there are two classes, there is the clean and the unclean, is, is being brought across to us here. And the real thing that defiles is not the disease, it's the sin that it's the model of. Now, Something else that will surface here as we go, we're going to start talking about some sins here. And uh, as we go through these rules and laws, we're not, you're not talking about full laws here. These are highlights. But understand that the sins he's talking about are not against your fellow man. It's against the Lord. You may think it's against the fellow man, but if you watch the idiom, God treats that sin as if it's against him. And it's in that sense you can understand what David said when he repented of Bathsheba, of the issue with the affair with Bathsheba. 
In Psalm 51, he repents of that and confesses it of sin. And he says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Well, wait a minute. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against his wife. He did all kinds. Yes, but that's eclipsed by his sin against God. That's what he's repenting of. So we got down to about, verse 5, the Lord spoke again to Moses, speaking unto the children of Israel, when a man or woman shall commit any sin that men commit to do trespass against the Lord and that person be guilty, then shall they confess their sin which they have done, and he shall recompense his trespass with the principle thereof, and add to it a fifth part thereof, and give it unto him against whom he hath trespassed. Now this is the 20%. In other words, if you sin against some guy, you not only have to make restitution, you have to confess it, and make restitution, and the restitution includes a 20% fee. That's not a crime. If it's a crime, you, if you talk about crimes, you're talking about a thief has to pay back double. If you're talking about stealing a sheep, it's four times. This is later on. You'll find this in, you know, that's in Exodus 22 and elsewhere. If you steal cattle, it's five times. That's a crime. This is implied not a crime, but a tort or a, an injury of some kind. Not, 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 not that crisp that it's a crime or it's a different penalty. Do you follow me? But in, through this whole pattern, the sins against the Lord. And God permits no frauds. God permits no frauds. But the man or woman, kinsman, uh, to, rec uh, to recommit the trespass unto, let the trespass be recompensed unto the Lord, even to, unto the priest, besides the ram of an atonement, whereby the atonement shall be made for him. In other words, if the guy is dead or can't, you can't do it, then you make the atonement to the priest. He gets to keep it. Every offering of the holy things of the children of Israel, which they bring unto the priest, shall be his. Every man's hallowed things shall be his. Whatsoever any man giveth the priest, it shall be his. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man's wife go aside and commit a trespass against him, if a man lie with her carnally, and if it be hidden from the eyes of her husband, and be kept secret, and she be defiled, there is no witness against her, neither she be taken with the manner. And the spirit of jealousy come upon him, that is, upon the husband, and he be jealous of his wife, and she be defiled. Or if the spirit of jealousy come upon him, and he be jealous of his wife, and she be not defiled, then shall the man bring his wife unto the priest, and he shall bring her offering for her, and a tenth part of an ephah of barley meal, and he shall pour no oil upon it, nor put frankincense thereon, for it is an offering of jealousy, an offering of memorial, bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her. This is the law of jealousy. It gets kind of strange here. Let's just follow through. The priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. The priest shall take the holy water in an earthen vessel and of the dust that's on the floor of the tabernacle. It's the only place in the scripture where the floor of the tabernacle is mentioned, by the way, but going on. Uh, the priest shall take and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and uncover the woman's head. In other words, she's now without the husband's protection, in effect and put the offering of the memorial in her hands, which is the jealousy offering, and the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that causes the curse. And the priest shall charge her by an oath, and say unto the woman, If no man hath lain with thee, and if thou hast not gone aside to uncleanness with another instead of thy husband, be thou free from this bitter water that causes the curse. But if thou hast gone aside to another instead of thy husband, and if thou be defiled, and some man have lain with thee, uh, with thee beside thine husband, then the priest shall charge the woman with an oath of cursing, and the priest shall say unto the woman, The Lord make thee a curse, and an oath among the people, when the Lord doth make thy thigh to rot, and thine abdomen, abdomen to swell. And uh, can you imagine her ready to drink this stuff? Yeah. And this water that causeth thee curse shall go into thy bowels to make thine abdomen to swell and thy thigh to rot, and the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. 
and the priest shall write those curses in a book, and he shall blot them out with the bitter water. And he shall cause the woman to drink the bitter water that causes the curse, and the water that causes the curse shall enter into her and become bitter. And the priest shall take the jealousy offering out of the woman's hand, and shall wave the offering before the Lord and offer it upon the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the offering, even the memorial thereof, and burn it upon the altar, and afterwards shall cause the woman to drink the water. And when he hath made her drink the water, then it shall come to pass, if she be defiled and have done trespass against her husband, that the water that causeth the curse shall enter into her and be- become bitter, and her abdomen shall swell, and her thigh shall rot, and the woman shall be a curse among the people. her people. And if the woman be not defiled, but be clean, then she shall be free, and shall conceive seed." And this is the law of jealousies, when a wife goeth aside to another instead of her husband, and is defiled, or when the spirit of jealousy cometh upon him, and be jealous over his wife, and shall, uh, and shall set the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall execute upon her all this law. Then shall the man be guiltless from iniquity, and the woman shall bear her iniquity. Well, strange, this is the law of jealousy, kind of a strange idea, obviously administered supernaturally in the air, don't uh, uh, there are books, some people try to say, gee, this is, they try to rationalize it some way. Uh, God is dealing here with two things. He's not just dealing with adultery. The penalty for adultery is pretty crisp and clear. He's dealing here with the corrosive effect of jealousy itself. And by administering this, he is protecting the nation from, from uh, destruction, knowing that the uh, affairs of people, uh, pun intended, um, can destroy a nation, destroy uh, a, 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 uh, the nation that is here being born out of Egypt and, and, uh, and through the wilderness and going on. A strange set of rules. Uh, God apparently administered this in supernatural terms. Um, but what's interesting here, the focus really isn't adultery in the primitive sense, in the, in the prim- and I mean in the primary sense, but rather uh, the, the corrosive effect of, of, uh, of, uh, je- of uh, jealousy itself. And if you, one of the background readings here would be Othello. If you want to understand what jealousy or suspicion can do uh, in and of itself, with or, with or without foundation. And uh, it's interesting here that, uh, that we're not talking about, the, well, you can apply it to our nation ourselves. Our nation's coming apart. And why is it coming apart? Because in our country, whether it's speaking in marriages or speaking in business, we've lost the concept of the sanctity of a commitment. We have... Uh, we bring up our kids with no link between character and destiny. As we uh, look at our society, we, uh, there is no linkage, no apparent linkage between a person's character and his destiny. Successful people uh, have been uh, chicanery artists, crooks uh, of uh, all kinds. And uh, in our society, we've, we've unhooked that link between, for, for our kids uh, in terms of example. We talk about uh, commitments on Wall Street. It used to be that the ethics of Wall Street were my word is my bond. We have very immoral people, but that was their word. I can remember doing deals 20, 30 years ago where uh, verbal commitments were adequate in this in the street because of men of because that was their that was their style. It was a style question. And today, of course, uh, it speaks for itself. What a mess we have. And that and the place that where it shows up uh, most graphically is in our marriages. Uh, how what a what a rampant mess we have in our in our uh, uh, morals and what is that doing to our country? It's disintegrating around us. Uh, all kinds of fictions get attached to this. We speak glibly. We read articles about so-called victimless crimes. 
What nonsense. We say, two consenting adults, what, what does it matter what they decide to do? Well, that's, uh, 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 that's fine if they don't live in somebody else's love. If you live in somebody else's love, then what you do, what you do, do does matter. You're part of the fabric of a family or a tribe or a nation. Um, anyway, we're talk we've, we've migrated from the numbering of the camps. We're talking about uh, war warfare, worship, and service. Warfare in terms of the army that we talked about last time, the camp, marching order, all of that. We talked about worship, that is the priesthood. We've talked about service here with the, with the Levites as such. And uh, we're going to move on now to separation. We talked a little bit about that in chapter 5. Chapter 6 is going to deal with the vows, particularly the Nazarite vow. We'll talk about some other vows as we go. And, uh, and uh, we'll start picking up shortly. We'll get through all of this part of it and uh, of the rules and things and get back to the narrative and, and see what fascinating lessons the Lord has for you and I. Because we're going to see this people chosen of God, ordained by him, wander in the wilderness. And that's where you, most of us are. I'd love to feel after a study of the book of Joshua we've crossed over the Jordan, but I suspect that most of us, me included, still wander in the wilderness. So we have a lot to learn from these uh, 38 years that uh, are going to be here and described. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. We are a church of the firstborn, the firstborn of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that the firstborn singled out here are, are singled out in reference to Passover, and so, so are you and I. It's interesting that the first public title of Jesus Christ by John the Baptist himself is a Passover title, where John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. His first public declaration is he introduces Christ uh, publicly to the, to the multitudes. A very Jewish title a Passover title. You and I, in that spirit, are firstborn. The firstborn um, in the hymn. Uh, presentable before God by the virtue of his shed blood, not by anything that we do. It's by our hearts. Father, we praise you that you have brought us into your plan of redemption. Father, we just thank you that you've gone to such extreme lengths to redeem us from the disease that is set upon us, the disease of sin. We thank you, Father, that you have paid such a high price that we might live. We would ask you, Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit and the ministry of your word, that you would draw us deeper into the things of thee, that you would increase in us a hunger and an appetite for these things that you've done and these treasures you've hidden here for our learning. For we ask all these things in accordance with the authority and the commitment and the mandate that you've given us in Jesus Christ to his glory. Amen.